The year 1912 was a weird time for American classical music in the real world. Now imagine it in a fictional city that floats in the sky. Welcome to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. The city is Columbia, the setting for the new game Bioshock Infinite. Composer Gary Scheiman focused on elements of American folk culture from 1912, sounds like the fiddle or song composers like Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster wrote Camptown Races, Oh Susanna, and about a million other songs you know. Also, this episode is spoiler-free. We talk about the end, but we don't give anything away. This is quite different than your first two Bioshock scores. Can you explain why? Well, when I first started to work on the project, it was very clear that it was completely unrelated to the original Bioshock. Um, You're not in Rapture anymore. You're in in a different era. Everything about the game, except for some fundamental things, were different. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me and it was clear to Ken Levine, the uh, creative director, that we wanted a whole new direction for the score. It shouldn't sound like uh, we're back in Rapture. So uh, it, it's just it's obvious because it almost is a, like a fresh, clean slate. Though it has Bioshock elements, obviously, to it, it just was the obvious direction to go to, to try something completely new to fit the characters and the place. And, you know, Rapture was wet and cold and (laughs) claustrophobic and dark. And this is bright and sunny and in the clouds and uh, different Americana setting. And so so all, all that really demanded a fresh approach. In previous scores, um, you had more players, right? You had a little bit larger orchestra. It it had nothing to do with budget. (laughs) (laughs) It it literally was a creative decision. And initially, actually, I was thinking, wow, this should have this great big orchestral budget as well, or or, uh, approach as well. But as we got into it, It just didn't quite feel right. It didn't feel unique. And one thing about uh, Ken Levine is he disdained sort of the traditional Hollywood-sounding scores Mm -hmm. or traditional video game scores or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So we really – I really wanted to create something unique. And there was a point where I was really exploring and and finding stuff and some stuff was working, some stuff wasn't working. And then I thought, you know, what is it central? And I really gave it some deep – thought. And it seemed to me that the characters, and particularly Elizabeth, was uh, at the center of this story. And it is about a story. and It is uh, about people in, in this instance. And so 
I started to think about how could I represent a theme for her? What what would be appropriate? And, and we definitely had this Americana vibe. So mm-hmm. I went into the studio actually uh, without even request for this. And I, and I just said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to record this and uh, send it to Ken and, and to Jim Bonney, the uh, music director. And so I went in with a, with one cello and one viola, both very, very good players, mm-hmm. and went in and recorded Elizabeth's theme. And, and Ken responded very, very positively. He actually was over the moon. He was like, mm. wow, this is great. This is really the direction. It actually gave him an idea when you first meet Elizabeth in the game, the music actually affected how he thought about the storyline at that point a, a little bit. So uh, it, it was that much of a oh, epiphany. Wow for all of us. And once that sound of just like a few string instruments uh, had felt so good, I, I started thinking, well, let's let's keep that vibe going and try it for other other parts of the game. And and it kept working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can get into more detail on this because it was, it was really interesting. I've never scored any kind of a project, whether a film, a TV show, or a game like this, because I found that the samples really didn't work well. I had a bunch of so- solo string samples. They mm-hmm. just they didn't sound great mm-hmm. as compared to the the big string section samples that I own. Mm-hmm. So because it didn't cost all that much to go into a studio and record a small string section, it was, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty reasonable, especially on a big game project. Yeah. I said, let's go in and re- and let me record the music as I write it and present it to Ken because Ken will really get the vibe because I really want a lot of passion in the playing. Mm-hmm. I want really professional performances mm-hmm. and that that vibe where you really hear the bow on the string. And yes. and we started doing it that way and it really worked. So I had like maybe 10, 12 sessions to record the score over like a six or seven month period. Wow. That's unusual. Very unusual. I've never done it before like this, but yeah. it really worked for this project. another question I had, because you did use these traditional string instruments with live players, but you've asked them to play in unique ways at times. I wonder if we could talk about some of the things that you either asked them to do or asked them not to do, whether it's not using vibrato or whether it's playing on the strings very aggressively with the bow, like you said, you know, making that noise. Um, Can you talk about some of those techniques? Yeah, I I didn't want the sort of heavy vibrato European uh, string sound. So I, I wanted more of a sort of fiddle sound and, and uh, like American fiddlers play. Sure. And they don't add a lot of vibrato to their performance. So I was always asking them to, you know, they, they'd play something really nicely and i go, that, that was great, but too much vibrato. Give me this sort of fiddle sound. And they got it, you know. And so that was one, because I, I thought that that sound had a, a unique quality to it. Not that, I mean, we haven't, not that we haven't heard before, but in sure. the context of this score. And also that it just felt right for the period. It really helped the music sound like the early American style of music. And, and then, of course, there was much more aggressive music for the combat, mm-hmm. which was also small. Yes. 
um, ensembles and but playing very aggressively. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had the option of doing what's called a second pass, where you basically take the same ensemble and record them again to get like a thicker sound, like you have yeah. like doubling the number of players. Mm-hmm. And every time we did it, we always went for the single pass performance because it had a more aggressive quality to it. Even though you're going for you, you want this combat music. When you add another pass, it sort of like softened the attacks because they weren't exactly at the same time anymore. They were just sort of like mushed, you know. Yep. So it took the edge off of it. And so uh, it was really cool to uh, use that style of playing with just single passes and just asking them to play like demons, you know. talk a, a little bit more about the combat music because particularly in um, on the soundtrack Battle for Columbia 5, the last battle cue they actually put on the soundtrack, you're playing things out of time. The cymbal hits are like kind of behind the beat and it, and it just has this very unsettled simplicity to it because you've done, you know, these percussion versus this small set of strings. And I wondered if you wanted to speak about that unsettled aspect of the music. Yes, uh, a lot of the percussion I played myself. Oh, cool! And I, I don't have a I don't have a drummer's sense of timing, <laughs> but of course, with computers, you can go back and do what's called quantizing, which yep. puts everything right on the beat exactly, not even a millisecond out. Yeah. But we decided that that was not the vibe. That the vibe we wanted was when Jim Bonney and I were talking about we were, we were talking about like sloppy drum circle on Venice Beach playing, you know. Um, we wanted it sort of ha- have sort of a primitive uh, effect, almost as if, you know, you had warriors about to go to war who weren't musicians, but were just banging with all the passion that they could muster. And mm-hmm. so that was that was the vibe, you know, and uh, it seemed to uh, to be very effective. <laughs> I want to talk about one of the things that always kind of makes me crack a little smile when people criticize a score like yours for having short tracks. Because in all honesty, Bioshock doesn't really leave room for looping, and there isn't a lot of explore music in the game. So to me, that means when I hear the music, it's for a very specific, if not very significant, moment in the game. Yeah, I mean, there is looping music in the combat sections, but other than that, the music really does not loop. And most of the time that I was writing music was literally scoring moments in the game. Mm-hmm. And there was it was critical uh, emotional moments or moments where you wanted to uh, create a mood, but mostly it was like f- scoring a film. So other than the combat stuff and a few tracks that did get... Um, looped or used for generally setting setting a mood or whatever mm-hmm. the tracks were just fitting what they specifically needed 
let's talk about the influence of 1912 American song and pop culture because you mentioned fiddling. And I'd like to hear some more specific influences that you drew upon to create that Americana sound. When I first started thinking about the score, obviously the first thing you do is you look at the time 1912 mm-hmm. and you look at you know what was going on musically there and you say how can I incorporate this into the music how can this influence the score and it, it's the obvious thing to to look at however when you look at the music of 1912 it's not particularly effective for scoring mm-hmm. um, there was classical music in 1912 really it had a European vibe um, mm-hmm. at, at that point there wasn't much going on classical music really breaking through into an American style. Right. Um, I mean, you had Charles Eyes, but he was just sort of beginning to... to, to and I thought about Charles Eyes. But really, then you had the pop music. And the pop music also was uh, a sort of, as I thought about it, it wasn't evoking really deep emotions, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was hard to use. There's a, a couple of cues... Uh, particularly one lighter than air when you first enter the city and you open those gates. Yes. And my, the vibe to me was uh, Stephen Foster. Uh, okay. And so I, I wrote this uh, melody for strings, and it really felt like a Stephen... In my mind, I was kind of recreating a Stephen Foster song. But then behind it, I had these sort of uh, chromatic, uh, eerie strings mm-hmm. sort of just subtly suggesting that all this beauty is not everything that's here, you know? So that was one very specific moment that was very much influenced by the music of that time, although updated with with that sort of chromatic background overlay. They were recorded actually as separate passes by by the string players. that we just said, you know, it could be more in the playing, like Mm -hmm. as I described earlier, the style of that fiddle kind of performance, but it doesn't have to be specific to any particular style of music of that time other than this vibe that American music, whether it was from the country or or whatever, had sort of a simplicity to it. Ken and I, too, wanted this sort of simplicity. And actually, Ken kept pushing, make it simpler. Sometimes I'd write cues. He goes, I like this music, but it needs to be simpler. It's too complex. So Mm -hmm. I would simplify it even further. as I was playing in the combat sections that if I got a really great headshot <laughs> or something like that, there would be these string hits that were just 
it just fit so perfectly. Everything was musical in even the battle. Were you aware that they were going to do that? Were you asked to create yes. certain sounds? Okay. Yes, I created a bunch of string hits, or hits mm-hmm. for uh, for them. It's absolutely one of my favorite parts of the game. Was that it was so satisfying. <laughs> now I didn't place him in there. I just sort. I did, uh, Jim just said I need like. Ten different headshots. Yeah. <laughs> I go, hmm. All right. What does a headshot sound like in strings? You know? On a violin. Uh, so I had to rack my brain, but uh, yeah. we found some good sounds. I want to talk about one particular cue called AD. And now that I've finished the game, I know what that means. But when I heard that, was uh, this to me sounded like Steve Reich a little, a little bit of influence of Steve Reich. I loved this cue. I listened to it over and over again. Can you talk about constructing that particular piece? I wrote that music as a theme for Booker. Okay, okay. And it was like my Elizabeth epiphany. And it was like I hadn't been asked to write it. But um, I said, you know, Jim, I, I, have, I have this piece of music that's been kind of in my mind, and I want to write this, write it. And so he just said, yeah, go for it. You know. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it, and I sent it to him, and there was no place to put it initially. And then towards the end of the game, we're looking for some music for a sp- specific spot, and Jim said, I have an idea. And he, and he put that in there, <laughs> and Ken loved it, and I loved it. And I go, I'm really glad you <laughs> used that cue because I really like that. Yeah. piece of music. Yep. And uh, yeah, it does have sort of that ostinato-y, you know, yeah. Steve Reich, if you, if you must. Um. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I listened to that song more than I've ever listened to any Steve Reich song. Does that make you feel better? <laughs> that, that makes me feel uh, great. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Terry Riley, maybe. Okay. Okay. That's fair. want to ask you a little bit about the end, something which apparently you didn't even know about until toward the very end of your process, right? No. I, as a matter of fact, Jim and I were having conversations. I go, well, how's, this, how's the game going to end? He goes, I don't know either. They're, not, they're only keeping, they're keeping it super secret amongst just a very few people in, because they were so paranoid about the secret getting out, you know? Yeah. Video games are very secret endeavors and so you're you're always asked not to talk about what you're doing or you can't even t- tell people what you're working on but even within the development team themselves they didn't know and I didn't it was like one of the last scenes that I scored was that scene that was uh, not till my very last uh, you know week or two of working on the game it was my last session I recorded it and I was like that's a really interesting end to this game. <laughs> Uh, Jim, what does it mean? Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it was it was very. It's quite brilliant, and and, and it's obviously people think it's a great end end to yeah. the game. And you know, the, all the ramifications of it became even clear to me when someone sent me a link to explaining the end of the game, and I went, 
oh, okay. Now I really understand the end of Bashak. So, I mean, um, sometimes, you know, we're given just what enough to do our job, but we're not really provided uh, all the information. And part of that is is because of the secret nature, particularly of a game like Bioshock, where the story and plot are so central and they, they want it to be a surprise until the game comes out and, you know, loose lips sink ships, as they said <laughs> in World War II. Now that you've finished your third game in the Bioshock series, do you think about the three as as one unit? Do you kind of think of it as a big arc like that in your uh, writing career, or do you view them quite separately? Well, I think, obviously, as we discussed earlier, the first two scores sort of are part of a similar style Mm -hmm. and direction of music, although I think they're Mm -hmm. both quite different scores and unique, and I think Bioshock 2 score holds up quite well. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think of them as the whole Bashak genre. I'm, I'm going to do a seminar in May on the music of Bioshock here in L.A. Oh, cool. Daniel Schwager, who's interviewed me, is going to come and we're going to talk about the whole process from, you know, the first mm-hmm. Bioshock to the Bioshock Infinite. But so in that sense, I am thinking of it as, you know, as one complete musical journey, shall we say. And, and I think working for uh, irrational games... And, and of course, 2K Marin did Bioshock 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something special about these games and about the quality and high, very high expectations that they have. I mean, every, everyone wants you to do your best job, but the, but they wanted something so unusual, and they and the references were so cool, you know, that uh, it, it was very special to work on them. So from that sense, they all do feel like part of a whole. was just an absolute um, pleasure to hear the score and to play through the game. And I'm so, so glad I got a chance to finish it before I spoke with you. But Did you enjoy um, the game? Oh, yes. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I wish I would have had about another week so I could really take my time through it because I'm one of those really slow players. I want to check every... And Bioshock Infinite is the type of game you want to play that way. A lot of people are saying play it a second time and, and then just scope around and just yep. look under every nook and cranny because there's tons of details, you know. Well, congratulations on a, on a wonderful score and um, all the success. And thank you for coming on and, and speaking with me. My pleasure. been listening to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese, and the technical director is Johnny Vince Evans.
Next week, we'll talk to Lenny Moore, who has new music coming up for the Rising Storm expansion pack to Red Orchestra 2. If you have questions or comments, you can talk to me on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook at Top Score Podcast. Thank you.